0: to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grox.
1: That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science,
2: technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Brian Gurky. Coming up on this week's show, we'll be taking a look at current events in the world of science and technology.
0: Also joining us today is our special guest, Stephen J. Cannell, who will tell us about his new book, Runaway Heart.
2: In addition, you can find out what a phonon is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, right here on Berkeley Grox.
0: I'm Franklin.
1: And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, making me your very own Brian Gerke.
0: Wow. Welcome back. Our oh, very own so
1: Brian Gerke. Yeah. Our very own. I thought you were a figment of our imagination for a while. I hadn't seen you for so long. <laughs> well, I'm just sort of floating out there and <laughs> reading. Or maybe land. we're a
0: figment of his imagination. Whoa. You think? So anyone seen any good movies lately? Oh, no, you've been
2: sitting I in my room oh, looking at my wall. <laughs> oh, the Hulk. the
0: Hulk. The Hulk. Actually,
2: you know, looking at your wall might be
1: better than some of the films that are out there right now. Oh, but the Hulk was, of course, filmed at LBL. <laughs> right. Indeed. Yeah.
0: But speaking of LVL, here's a story from LVL. Oh, what a
1: segue. Oh, wow, that was... I didn't even see that one coming.
0: So there's a story about lithium, and it's for... uh, You know, lithium is good for people with bipolar disorder, you know, people who get violent once in a while. Okay. Like the Hulk. So LVL has first recorded images of uh, lithium from a transmission electron microscope.
1: They haven't seen lithium before in a transmission electron microscope?
0: No, because it's so small. So right now, uh, besides helium and hydrogen, lithium is the smallest element that they were able to observe using an electron microscope. Apparently, they, they use a technique in which you, they have several images and some interpolate in such a way that they can observe what seems to be the lithium atom in whatever material they have. I guess the idea is you have crystals of this stuff, and you shoot an electron beam through it, and based on the patterns that scatters out, you can sort of uh, figure out what the image of your crystal structure is. In this case, they get a resolution of up to 0.8 angstroms, which is very, very small, so that's enough to be able to see this uh, lithium but the real reason why lithium is so interesting is because um, it's been using lithium uh, batteries, other materials for energy storage. And if you can observe and, you know, figure out how this stuff works in the material, we could probably design better uh, batteries in the future. So this is the main driving force for trying to uh, observe these systems.
1: If People want to learn more about the, uh, the structure of lithium.
0: They can go to the July issue of Nature Materials. <laughs> to the July issue of Nature Materials.
2: So the big news from the world of physics this week is the discovery of a new form of matter. Another one? <laughs> a new form of matter, is the this? pentaquark. The pentaquark. A state of five quarks forming one particle. Wow. For those unfamiliar with the quark model of matter, most uh, matter comes in either, actually, in fact, all matter so far, comes in either two-quark or three-quark particles, two-quark particles called mesons and three-quark particles called baryons, which are the ones that we see most of the paryons, time, matter. <laughs> neutrons, protons, and things like that, made of three quarks. And it's long been thought that if you could smash together a meson and a baryon hard enough that you'd get them to coalesce into a five-quark particle Mm. called Mm. a pentaquark. And this has recently been discovered... By the SP Ring Eight Physics Lab in Japan, and then confirmed by people working at the Jefferson National Laboratory in Virginia. So this is at very high statistical significance, which mm-hmm. is the sort of currency in particle physics. Right. have got for those who who care about these things, Jap- the Japanese people found a statistical significance of 4.6 standard deviations, and the people in Virginia got 5.4 standard deviations, which is enough that we are well more than 99.9 percent sure that this is this nice. has actually been found. Yeah, people know this theoretically. So, is it possible that they could have even more uh,
1: quarks in a in a particle?
2: Presumably so. In yeah. fact, the basic idea is that the most stable form of matter is just a whole bunch of quarks together in Mm. one big particle. Oh, is that right? Uh, That's thought to exist, say, in uh, neutron stars. Or a
0: black hole, maybe? So
2: there's nothing stopping these things from from forming. It's just that the most stable forms are either three quarks, two quarks, or lots of quarks. Multi-quarks. It turns out. You can have five. They just decay rather quickly back into twos and threes. Anyway, if people are interested in knowing more about this, they can take a look at the July 4th issue of Physical Review Letters, out soon at a newsstand near you.
1: Okay, and final note uh, regarding, uh, oh, all the fun genomic sequencing that's going on in the world out there. You know? So they've, as you we all well know, they've uh, sequenced much of the human genome and have a uh, pretty good draft of it. And all these genomic sequencers out there looking for things to do. And Department of Energy has recently announced a big grant to a private nonprofit institute in Maryland to decode the genome of every organism found in the Sargasso Sea, which is a body of water containing about two million square miles. in
2: every every single organism. Every
1: single every individual, individual organism. Every well every every species of organism. Uh, okay, uh, that but, seems like a slightly yeah, less overwhelming. Still somewhat daunting and Indeed. Uh, ambitious. But uh, it's certainly interesting that genomic sequencing in general seems to be on the wane right now. Some people are looking right. more at the function of proteins. So this might be the last. We head off
2: to the Sargasso Sea, and that field of biology disappears into the Bermuda Triangle. Is that right? <laughs> that's yeah, pretty right. much it. Okay. And this is
1: found in the recent edition of The Scientist. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, Stephen J. Cannell will join us to discuss his new novel, Runaway Heart. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, what if the military's foot soldiers were not our sons and daughters, but genetically engineered animals programmed to kill with superhuman strength and speed, and just enough intelligence to follow orders blindly? Well, that's the question posed in Runaway Heart, the new novel by Stephen J. Cannell, who is the prolific Emmy Award-winning writer, producer, creator of such television hits as The Rockford Files, The A-Team, 21 Jump Street, Wise Guy and the Commish. And he's also the author of the New York Times best-selling Shane Scully novels, The Tin Collectors, The Viking Funeral, and Hollywood Tough. He's uh, on the program today to discuss his brand-new book, Runaway Heart, and some of his uh, previous productions. Uh, Mr. Cannell, thank you very much for joining us today on Brooke Rocks.
3: Oh, thanks for having me on. Uh, It's
1: really our pleasure. Well, you've written a very fascinating new book, Runaway Heart. I wonder if you tell our audience a little bit about it.
3: Well, it started, I was watching, actually I've had this idea for a while, before I wrote it and I was started way back when, I, when we were at war in Kosovo and I remember that jet fighter pilot got shot down and all of a sudden it was this huge news story and they were trying to push Bill Kent, Clinton to get out of the war over this one guy and, and I was thinking God, here we, here we are trying to be the world policeman. we're in a war that I think was probably pretty justified against a guy committing genocide and yet over one pilot we're now talking about getting out of the war and I was thinking you know when we were in Vietnam there would be a hundred guys would die in one action we never even heard heard about it. Mm-hmm. This whole shift toward the media war, you know, has made it so that it's brought the war into our living rooms. And, and now, you know, we, we don't want to lose one person. And I was thinking if I were to DARPA, and DARPA, as you probably know, is Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. They're the agency in our military that basically tries to design the next generation of weapons. They came up, for instance, with the stealth bomber in the 80s, you know, so it was, it was a secret weapon for a long time, and then was finally unveiled. And they would be the agency that would be trying to say, how are we going to be able to continue to be the world policeman? fight a war in Iraq, fight a war in Afghanistan, if our American population won't accept any death in the field? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that problem seemed to me to be to create a disposable soldier. So as I, if I'm writing in science areas, and I've written one other book that dealt with bioterrorism, I like it more to be like science fact. So I, I wanted to write about, if, the, if it was a scientific take, I wanted it to be science that currently exists. And I'd also actually read in the newspaper that they were talking about reclassifying chimpanzees as a subgroup of homo sapiens instead of as apes. And the reason for that was that the DNA of a chimpanzee is 98.4% of, of homo sapien DNA. I mean, they're almost identical to us. Mm-hmm and much closer to us than they are to their ape brethren. So I got in touch with a genetic uh, engineer and people out at UCLA who were involved in genetic research, and I said, how hard would it be to take a chimpanzee and upgrade his genes so that we would have viable soldiers, somebody that you could communicate with, that would take orders, that would work with other soldiers or, or chimps in the field, would be able to handle weaponry. And these guys said, well, it's pretty simple. It would probably take about eight or nine upgrades in different genes and we started to talk about what they were and it would be communications upgrades it would be some brain protein to prove the quickness of thought a certain physiology you know they were saying well you know if you're going to design a soldier you'd want some physiological changes for instance chimps have very long fingers because they run on their knuckles on their front uh, extenders or paws you know and they do have the, the opposing thumb, which is a critical to operating equipment. So maybe you make some changes and shorten the fingers and stuff like that. And the actual adding of the human gene to replace the chimp gene in these areas is very simple science and got Dolly the sheep being mass produced in, in Ireland we've got a, a religious group saying they're going to clone a human baby and and so all of this stuff is like in our grasp so i decided that when they told me it was doable science and actually one guy said give me 100,000 dollars i'll bring you this animal in 6 months <laughs> you know so you know it was really intriguing for me so i i came up with this idea of runaway heart and to, you know i got to thinking that i could make a really nice piece of fiction out of this but have it based on fact you know what i did was i created a character named herman strockmeyer and he's like this 55 year old overweight attorney with a arrhythmia. the run, runaway heart is he has a heart arrhythmia mm. but he's also a, a guy who has tremendous passion for uh, his, his lawsuits that he's filing. He's a bad attorney. He, he loses most of his cases. His, his daughter is his, his paralegal. She's beautiful. She's in law school. She's learning to be an attorney, but she, she desperately loves this guy, sees all of his flaws. And he is, when we meet him, filing a lawsuit against the federal government, actually, he's seeking injunctive relief on behalf of the monarch butterfly, which is actually facing extinction because it's eating the pollen from the genetically modified food, specifically corn, hmm. and is dying. Hmm. And so he's filing a suit against the FDA and a bunch of other federal agencies and some genetics labs. And he has an electronics detective who basically goes into computers and tries to find where this stuff is because the government hides it from him. And he then files a discovery motion. Once he knows what computer the information is in, he'll file a discovery motion against that company or that agency. And this electronic detective accidentally downloads the gene map for this animal with GMO foods. And so he has inadvertently got his hands on basically the government great white shark. You know, I mean, this is the thing they don't want anybody to know about yet. They haven't perfected it. They're training these animals at a government camp out in the desert to be soldiers. uh, They've got their first generation of them bred and actually raised to the point where they can become soldiers. They can communicate. They have basically the intelligence of about an 18-year-old human, which is what mostly our soldiers are. And and Herman Strachmeyer, this this schlubby kind of guy ends up with this absolute monster on the other end of this rope that he's holding. And he hires a, a detective named Jack Werta. He's actually a, a cop who uh, got a bullet in his back in the North Hollywood shootout. He's only 30 years old, but he's retired from the police department and is now a private detective. And they hire him to try and find out what happened to their uh, electronic detective, this guy that downloaded this stuff and passed it on to Herman, who actually gets murdered. And that's the beginning of this drama. And so a wild ride for these oh, three wow. characters as they try and expose this piece of science that nobody knows is happening.
1: Huh. Sounds like a very fascinating, uh, very fascinating novel there.
3: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, and again, it is based on absolute facts. So it's, uh, In fact, in terms of its ability to happen, I can't say that it it is happening, Mm -hmm. but certainly the science exists. I'll read you a a quote here, which is really interesting. It's in the front of the book. Mm -hmm. Advances in genetic engineering, which one day could transform animals into subhuman slaves, are developing much faster than expected, and Congress must monitor the field. That statement was made by Al Gore Jr. in 1982 on the floor of the Congress. Mm. So that was 20 years ago. That he made that statement, and so we can only imagine the science has gotten much greater since then.
1: Indeed, indeed. Well, why genetically engineered animals and not perhaps increases in, say, robotics, designing robotic soldiers?
3: Well, I think robotic soldiers, you are dealing with artificial intelligence, which is, I think, quite a bit further away. Mm-hmm. This is not, you know, if you take a, uh, and again, I'm not writing science fiction. I'm not, I mean, this is Crichton-esque in a a certain way, Mm -hmm. but I'm not writing about something that's going to happen in 20 or 30 years. I'm writing about something that conceivably could be going on right now. This science is is right here today. I mean, we can do this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a a chimp has basically the IQ of a three or a four-year-old human child. So you're talking about upping that IQ to an 18-year-old, basically, and that's not that big a jump. And by adding the correct genes to the mix, it's a real doable thing. And now you have a soldier you can communicate with Mm -hmm. who doesn't have a moral component, Mm -hmm. much like a robotic soldier would. not I mean, you could say to these animals, kill everybody in a brown suit and they'll go do it. They wouldn't say, well, that's wrong. You know, you have the advantage of... They're being very easy to manufacture, very easy to clothe and feed. You know, it'll march all day long for a banana. You know, mm-hmm. what I mean, it's you can breed them to be subject to fighting in cold climates with, with fur, or they can be bred to fight in very hot climates right. so that you can basically... Design them for the military actions that you want. It's a pretty, pretty interesting uh, idea in terms of how you would go about it. Plus, you have a, you know, you have a living, breathing uh, animal that can, that can be communicated with. Uh, we're using dolphin in our naval programs. We're using dogs and other kinds of animals as mm-hmm. military allies uh, in the field, you right. know. Um,
1: they had a case where they would put electrodes in these rats as well and able to control them electronically using stimulation right. of the
3: brain. So I, I, you know, I just thought it was a really interesting area to write a book about and it, and it was fun to write. Mm-hmm. And I the characters that I created were really interesting and, and as I said, Herman Struckmeyer, sort of Don Quixote, in that he has these great passions, but he's a very imperfect lawyer, and he loses most of his cases.
1: I see. So, is this how you go about uh, coming up with most of your uh, creations? Is something interests you in, say, the current news media, and you write a story about it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I get interested in things and in areas, and sometimes I, I, you know, I don't know where, you know, why I'm all of a sudden something I'm reading in the newspaper or seeing on television, I go bang like. Watching that story about the pilot that pilot who got shot down in Kosovo, I didn't mm-hmm. know when I was watching that it would lead to this novel. Mm. But it did. I mean, that's exactly the genesis of it. I was looking at that and thinking, this is ridiculous. You know, if we're, if we're going to mm-hmm. commit to go to this war, we can't be telling Clinton to get out because of one guy. Right. We've got to be able to, our threshold has got to be a little bit higher than that. And then there's the whole moral dilemma. If you look at it, if you say that we're going to make war so easy on our American population, Nobody's going to die. Only animals are going to go fight the war, even robotics. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, it, we become a very, could conceivably become a very bellicose nation because we're not paying any price to go to war. Mm. You know, well, let's just go, Let's. hey, while we're at it, why don't we take Iran? Hey, while we're at it, why don't we go get Jordan? Why don't we get Yemen? And all of a sudden, you know, there's no price to be paid. I think it's, in a strange way, probably a good counterbalance on war that, we're going to lose some children if we decide to fight one Mm -hmm. because it puts pressure on our government to be more careful about what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. And if we make it too easy, then maybe we're we're creating something that we don't want that's on that side. So all of those things are sort of explored in this
1: novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, certainly perhaps one of the the reasons of the ease with which we went to Iraq was that we were so confident about our abilities to go in and not uh, lose any men because of our technology.
3: Yeah, and, and in fact, that proved that to be true but we are now losing a guy a day over there you know and not not that that's a lot of people compared to vietnam Mm -hmm. but there is an expense you know and there are reasons why people are saying let's get out or we didn't have a good plan and they don't want to lose our children our men and our women you know our young men and women so i think that's probably a good counterbalance on on our military and on our government
1: It's it's really a fascinating uh, topic. Um, Just switching uh, gears a little bit here. So you're certainly the creator of television programs and novels. I'm just curious, how did you get involved in writing and all the other things that go along with it?
3: Well, I've always wanted to be uh, a writer. You know, from the time I was in high school or even before, I have learning disabilities. I have uh, dyslexia pretty severely. And so as a result of that, I, I flunked three grades before I got out of high school. I actually made one of those up. But I graduated two years behind my original kindergarten or first grade class, I mm. guess it was, and so I, I had trouble in in school. I, I went to the University of Oregon. I did graduate from Oregon, but it, in four years, but I only had like a two point one cumulative GPA. So school hmm. was not a real easy thing for me. But my imagination was always very active, and I always enjoyed writing and storytelling. And I had a creative writing professor at Oregon who was his name is Ralph Salisbury. And he made a great. Investment in my life because he convinced me that I had talent as a writer and, and actually begged me not to ever quit. He said, you have a gift and you shouldn't, you shouldn't give it up. And he looked past my misspellings and sloppy handwriting to what I was actually putting on the page, which all my school teachers uh, before that in high school and elementary school and everything had not. All they saw was the misspellings. They didn't see that maybe there was an interesting way that I had written this, you know. And so, it was tremendous upper for me to have a teacher tell me that i had a gift and and i i always wrote after i graduated from college i got married and had started my family and i was working for my dad i was driving a furniture truck but i would come home every night and write for five hours and what i decided to write was television scripts because i thought gee they use so much material in television i can maybe if i was a pretty good salesman i'm I'm fairly social and Mm Get along really well with people i thought gee you know if i can ever get in an office with one of these guys i'll bet i could sell him one of my ideas and lo and behold after about five or six years i started to get some appointments and and i started to sell. and within a year or two after that i was put under contract to universal as a writer and, and shortly after that created the rockford files and beretta and baba black sheep and a whole mm-hmm. bunch of shows at universal and then in 1981 i left my contract at universal i'd been there for eight years And I formed the Candle Studios, which was a completely private movie studio, television studio. And we built that up to become the third largest supplier of television in Hollywood. Hmm. I created or co-created over 38 or 40 shows there while I was through my own studio. But I sold that in 1995. And it was a very good business deal for me and set me up for life. And I decided, now what do I want to do? And and I decided, you know what? I want to pursue this earliest dream that I had to be an (laughs) author. It says in my high school yearbook under a picture of me, ambition author. And I don't think you author screenplays. You write them. You know, you You have to write a book to be an author. So I... I wrote my first book in 1995. It was called The Plan. It was a national bestseller. Hmm. And this is my ninth novel.
1: Wow. So dreams finally been realized.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I'm curious, what do you think about uh, the shift now in uh, television to uh, moving away from scripted television to this so-called reality TV?
3: Well, you know, I, I obviously, like most people who have been working in scripted television, don't like it. It's mm-hmm. hard on our creative community. It's hard on the actors. It's hard on the you know, on the writing and producing, the crews, everybody that's in this business. But on the other hand, it's not a good idea to, uh, I think, to look into somebody else's bag and go, oh, there's nothing good in there. I mean, there's some good reality television, and, and there's some that's not. But there's some television, scripted television that's not very good either, you know. And I think that what we have to do as creators of television is we have to make sure that we're not getting lazy, that we're not following old formulas, that we continue to break it up. I mean, we get a show like Six Feet Under mm-hmm. or The Shield or sopranos you've got shows here that are really unusual and the audience came to see them and and it made a huge difference but you'll notice that all of those shows are on cable none of them are on the network mm-hmm. And what I think has happened at network television is that they've been trying to do Friends over and over again. You know, mm-hmm. they know that's a huge hit. So they'll call you in and they say, Can we give us Friends in a firehouse or give us Friends in a police station or give us Friends in a in an ER room or give us Friends in a this or a Friends <laughs> in a that. You know, and it's like you end up, doing kind of recombined ideas. And so when the network sees it, they goes, oh, this is great. It's Friends, you know. And when the audience sees it, goes, this is terrible. I've been there. I've seen this. It's, it's, it's. I, I don't want to watch this show. Right. And so they've been losing network shares and at the same time been passing on these very shows that I mentioned, like The Sopranos, which was originally written for Fox hmm. by David Chase. Hmm. And they wouldn't program it, nor would NBC, nor would ABC, nor would CBS. So he took it to HBO and redefined television. I think it's a terrible shame that one of those networks didn't have the guts to put that thing on, but they were saying, well, it's not Friends, you know. If they would do it, they would say, can't we do Friends in the Mafia? You know, can't these all be young, kind of attractive? Can't they be Can there be some really hot-looking women? And no, Tony Soprano's 55, and he's on Prozac, and his wife isn't gorgeous. She's pretty, but she's not gorgeous. You know, his daughter hates him, and she's a little overweight. I mean, you know, it's all... That's the way David's mind works, yeah. and that's what made it special. And the fact is, it does apply. It does resonate with a with an 18- to 34-year-old audience. They, they do like it. Prontos has a really good 18- to 34-year-old demo. Mm-hmm. That was why the networks didn't program it, because they thought it would, with old actors in it that it would only appeal to old people. Well, they were wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, so... We need to be more risk-taking in our dramatic television, and uh, and I think if we do that, and the networks will put fresh and innovative ideas on and take a little risk, that they will find that it will, in the long run, bring uh, viewers back to them.
1: I certainly hope so. Well, we're certainly running a little out of time. I'm just curious, uh, what's coming up in the uh, projects for you?
3: Well, I'm I'm uh, I, obviously I'm writing one, or in in this case, this year I've got two novels come out coming out this year, you know, but. I'm writing a book a year and doing some feature films. Staying, my acting career in the last ten years has sort of been doing pretty good. So I get like three or four acting jobs a year. So I go do those, and I'm having a really good time. You know, I'm doing exactly what I want to do, which at, at my point in life is is exact is a good thing. You know. Uh.
1: Great, excellent. Well, we wish you best of luck uh, with uh, careers of the novelist, and uh, wish all of our, authors, our listeners to go out there and get runaway hard, uh, your brand new novel. And yep. uh, Mr. Campbell, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm Thanks okay. for having me on. All right. You were just listening to novelist, television producer, and actor Stephen J. Cannell discussing his new book, Runaway Heart, which is available in bookstores now. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, you can find out just exactly what is a phonon, so stay tuned. Look at what's happened to me. I can't believe
4: it myself. Suddenly I'm up on top of the
1: Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, have you ever wondered what happens when we get dehydrated? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science.
4: Ever wonder what happens when we become dehydrated? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Water, which accounts for more than half of our body weight, is a critical part of every bodily function. Obviously we can't cover everything, but starting with the mouth, let's get the lowdown on just what happens when we're low on water. Hmm, cracked lips. And hey, who turned off the saliva? Now, heading into the throat, notice that there's not much mucus production going on. That's because water is a key ingredient of mucus, so the normally lubricated vocal cords are pretty much left high and dry. Meanwhile, up in the eyes and nasal passages, the lack of mucus is also causing itchy drought conditions that will worsen as dehydration continues. Continuing into the stomach, the normal healthy flow of digestive juices has slowed to a drip. And in the kidneys, the lack of water in the organ itself, as well as in the body's solid waste, has pretty much brought the elimination process to a halt. Besides interfering with all these bodily functions, Dehydration also affects the body at the cellular level, which, if not relieved, is when things really get serious. Here in the cells, vital deliveries of oxygen, vitamins, and other nutrients from the bloodstream are barely trickling in because less water means less abundant and less free-flowing blood. In fact, the average person will survive no more than three days without water. Well, hope we quenched your thirst for knowledge today. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's National Education Program, Making Science Make Sense.
1: Oh, Everyday Science lady, you know, you could dry me out any day. And now for the answer to last week's question of the week, it's our good friend Brian Gerkey. Brian? And the answer to last
2: week's question of the week, what is a phonon? A phonon is a term that uh, follows from the term photon, where a photon is a quantum of light energy. A phonon is a quantum of sound energy. Uh, In a similar sort of way, you have a sound wave that acts as a particle in a quantum sense in the same way that a light wave acts as a particle in a quantum sense, and that's what a phonon is.
0: Okay, and now here's the Tokyo Kid with this week's question of the week. What is the density of the universe? If you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You might not win anything, but your weight may come off your mind. And that's all for this week's edition of Perfect Grox.
2: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Brian Gurky.
0: And I'm Franklin. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.